Welcome to our podcast, All About the Car, brought to you by Sherrill Tire and Service. I'm your host, Rob Hoffman, an auto service specialist with over 46 years of industry experience. On the ride with me today, our regular guest, Brian Call, a 42-year veteran of the automotive industry. Hello, Brian. Hey, Rob. How are you doing today? Excellent. And Bill, a guy that's logged a lot of miles behind the wheel and always comes back with a lot of great questions. Welcome back, Bill. Thanks, Rob. Glad to be here. Good to have you. Today, we have a special guest on the drive. John Harry, Executive Director of Portage County Historical Society. Man, that's a long name. And we are on site outside at Heritage Park in the village of Plover. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks for coming out and seeing us here. And then the- It's good to have you back. As a matter of fact, the last time we got together, we were digging deep into the history of the Stevens Point Brewery, and you brought a lot of good information. Well, let's hop in, buckle up, and hit the road. The uh, history of the Stevens Point Brewery turned out to be one of our most popular episodes, so we thought we'd go historical again and talk about the history of automotive repair in Portage County. From the global side, the late 1800s and early 1900s brought many new drivers to the ruddy roads. When something broke, they had to fix it themselves. Many bicycle mechanics started to do automotive repair and in many cases had to make their own replacement parts. Sounds like a lot of work. Do you think that there were horse and buggy people as well who got out of the business? I'm thinking so. <laughs> if, if the smart visionaries saw an opportunity and got into the automotive part, classes were even held at the YMCA on how to repair your car. So it took a while to get the bugs out. Henry Ford's vision changed the world by bringing affordable automobile ownership to the masses, which eventually streamlined every aspect of automobile ownership. The automotive repair industry continues to evolve today as cars and trucks become more complex. It's becoming more difficult to work on them at home. So let's bring the history closer to home, central Wisconsin, specifically Portage County. So I mentioned Portage County, and that's where we're sitting today. Pretty much a hub for automotive and repair from the research that I did, but I'm not the specialist. John's our specialist in Portage County. Finding out that he and I both kind of dug some information out of the 1920-21 Stevens Point directory. What did you find, John? Well, you know, it's interesting when I was asked to do this podcast and then I went around to the people at the Historical Society just for some guidance on like, hey, I'm doing this on cars and auto repair and and whatnot, the history of that. And they're like, oh, there's nothing. (laughs) I'm like, I'm "I'm sure there's not nothing. It's unwritten. (laughs) But it's, you know, it's of all the books that we have, this is an area that hasn't been dug into yet. So it's kind of exciting to get a start on it. And so I brought some of the resources that we have for research and one of them, like you said, is the Stevens Point City Directory. And do you mean directory being like this a, a phone, phone book? book? Okay. Yep. So this is yeah. there were phones then. There were there were phones, <laughs> right? Yeah. But phones, they had directories yeah. previous to phones too, right. because you know you still. I mean, then it, it, they just published your address, so right. People could find you, but that was pretty normal too. If if Bill Sherrill had an event where you had family in town, they would let be say Bill Sherrill at this address had his in-laws in town for right. the weekend and the, you know so there the was just a different way in of doing things in the newspaper things. yeah in the course. newspaper so that's right okay, what for is going the newspaper on. okay yeah. It's so funny now because I would not want people to know my address. <laughs> right. And there was just printed, <laughs> Times have which, which makes things a lot easier when you're doing history because you'd be like, oh, that person lived in this house. So, yeah, so I looked at the same directory you did. I actually looked at other directories previous to this, too. So what we had on hand uh, that was easily accessible for me because the archives are in a transition at the university with the move of the library. So I, I had some that I could access. And 
I went as far back as 1900. Oh my! And then I then I skipped ahead to 1908, 1912, 1918, and it wasn't until this 1920 directory that like something stood out to me. Oh, there's cars now. Before that, I'm sure there were things to do with automobiles, and I did some newspaper searching on a database we have subscriptions to, but did nothing Nothing was actually in the directory as far as, like, here's a business with a... It was kind know. of a free-for-all before, maybe, before yeah. this. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean we, carriage builders that... Transitioned or can make everything. Yeah. So the first automobile in Stevens Point was cited in 1900, January 12th, which would have been not the time of year I would have brought a car with very little. (laughs) So the Stevens Point Journal announced uh, that the Saturday afternoon at two o'clock, the automobile, they basically, it was like a, it was a car on parade. Oh my gosh. Uh, So people lined up the streets to see their first car. Horseless carriage. Yep. (laughs) And this is 19... 1900. So uh, Saturday afternoon at two o'clock, the automobile will start from the current house, which is just past like where Sunset Point Winery is. It's not there anymore. It's it's in the middle of uh, Water Street now. But would start at Current House and run east back to the normal school, which is now UWSB, right? Yep. And then it's going to go down Strong's to Division Street and back to Main Street. So it just did a big loop. And so it said it would do it several times. Ooh. <laughs> so <laughs> grab, a, grab a drink and sit back and, and watch this thing happen. But in 1900, there were only 8,000 cars in America. Wow. And so, so to have one right to here have one right Stevens here Point was a pretty big deal. Yeah. So then I was like, well, okay. So again, nothing in the directory until 1920. So I did some more searching. In 1911, Stevens Point hosted its first automobile show. Ooh. Uh-huh. So in the newspaper accounts was like, Milwaukee had theirs a few years ago and ours was better. <laughs> <laughs> of course it was. But they had uh, makes from Cadillac, Rambler. Some I'd never heard of, Stoddard Dayton, Overland, Buick was there, and a couple others. So they had the United States Tire Company was the host of that. So there was a must- so in 1911 there was a tire outlet here in the area, and it was a big deal. They, you know, this was would have been as big as any exposition or fair in town today. So other than that, I didn't you know find a whole lot. That's pretty cool first, stuff though. That's yeah. pretty deep. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first. So here's you know when you just do keyword searches, some interesting stuff pops up. 1907 was the first automobile wedding party. <laughs> So somebody what? had a wealthy relative oh that had a car, and the bride and groom got to drive off in, a, in an automobile. I in, wonder if there were the cans yeah, and the, just right. married on the back. Right, right. Well, and then the, you know, and then you find some other things that are a little more salacious. In 1921, it was the first jail sentence for somebody driving under the influence. Oh, so that wow. this stuff was reported on. Um, now, is that specifically this area, Portage County? That's, uh, well, Stevens Point. Really? Yeah. Okay. So we started way back then. Right. Yeah. So the guy's name was Frank Flatoff. Oh, oh a name that is still around. But he was a resident of Meehan, which isn't really a township anymore. Oh. It's out near like out 54, kind of near Club Forest. So he was in town drinking and somehow got in an accident. There's Meehan Road out there. Yep. Okay. So that's, that's where that's yeah. from. That's what kind of what you find when you try to advertise or when you try to research something that's kind of obscure like this. I wonder if they had drunk driving for horse and buggies. Like, could you drive your horse intoxicated? Or, you know, know, like if you ran your horse, you know, another buggy off the road or whatever. Getting the horse to drink the beer is half the issue. (laughs) (laughs) The first autonomous car. (laughs) The horse knows how to get home. Horse knows the way. (laughs) Carry the sleigh. I would just think that was pretty uh, commonplace back in the day. There was some drinking going on and and uh, riding in the buggy. Well, this so this guy got ten days of hard labor at the county jail and a fine of twenty dollars. Oh, wow. so that's 
That's, that's pretty, pretty bad. Yeah, I wouldn't like steep. the hard labor. Yeah, the hard labor. Well, I mean, yeah. So but 20 bucks is what? That's right. today and today's money. It's a lot yeah, of money. That's a lot of money. It is. For a town that where people got shot and they'd be like two weeks in jail. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. So the directory is a great source of information. And in 1920, all of a sudden you just see stuff start to pop up in the advertisements. It's hard to do research when you don't know when these stuff isn't text searchable. And so that's a goal that we have is to make more of this text searchable. So because you can't look up the automotive companies. There's a lot of information in that directory, though, in regards to all of the companies that did repair and uh, maintenance and sales. Well, a lot did. I mean, like you said, too. So this auto sales company on the corner of Clark and Strong's, they did cylinder reboring, truck tire service and battery service. You are seeing the birth of the modern automotive repair industry uh-huh. kind of around that time. Stevens Point got its first gas station in 1919. Uh-huh. Um, wow. So like as an actual service station before that, there was um, what they called curb pumps. So there would just be pumps on just the side random of the road. pumps. Yeah. And my guess is you had to have some sort of subscription. So you would get billed. Kind of like you would if you had like your dry cleaning. Right. Like some technology in there for back in the early 1900s. Right. Yeah. I'm sure it was a handwritten on a ledger somehow. <laughs> yep. Like you know. Yep. And one of the things that I saw that popped up in there too is the word vulcanizing, which kind of reels it back to the tire business that we're in. And vulcanizing was something that Charles Goodyear actually invented way back in the 1800s. A lot of the shops did vulcanizing. Brian, what would they do on a local level? What's vulcanizing? Do you remember? It's Introducing heat to the rubber and the, the rubber mixtures to make it stick together and cure so that it's a usable product. So that's what's involved in vulcanizing. It was probably repairing the tire okay. with a patch to cover a big cut in the tire. You'd vulcanize that patch to the tire itself to make it one unit. So really, today we do that kind of thing. We just don't call it vulcanizing. Right. We just use uh, certain types of adhesive and it's chemical repair based materials. Now. Vulcanizing sounds cooler. It does. It does. I like that. Yeah. Star Trekish. It's not right, Star Trek. Exactly. <laughs> and livery service. What's that? A lot of times, livery was with stable stables, so it has to do with the readying of a horse to ride that kind of stuff. Bunking okay. them down at night. Right. So that might have been part of the transition from the carriages and the horses to the automobiles where yeah. some of these companies were also running a livery service as well. Well, and you see when you think about not just these services that you need to upkeep a car, but the fuel that you need to put in it, it usually it was the first pumps might have been outside of a pharmacist because they had a kerosene stove inside. Oh, and so they already had yeah, a relationship yeah. with an oil company. And so that's why it was not seen as something urgent for them to suddenly have a gas station because they're like, well, somebody else is already doing kerosene, so they will get the oil. And what difference does it make if I have a gas station? So it makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And we, you know, we talked about, uh, or I mentioned, I should say earlier about all the roads were ruddy and full of holes and not really pavement, just a lot of ruts and rural stuff. So they Welling weren't really a, roads. They're not really <laughs> roads or paths. Yeah, right. In today's terms, but uh, and we complain about potholes. Today. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they you had know, some holes. There was, there, I mean, was... even like if you were lucky enough to be on a cobblestone street, that's not a smooth ride. No. At all. So, oh my god. <laughs> so a lot of these shops were doing welding too. So it just kind of tells you from a historical standpoint that there was a lot of repairs being done, frames being welded, fenders being welded back on. I'm assuming really a lot different back in those days than it is today. Was the, in Portage County, were there a lot of cobblestone streets? Did we go through that era? Yeah, so downtown was cobblestone. It was. Yep, and so, and then, I mean, that was replaced, boy, 
fifties, forties, okay. you know, so I'm not familiar with the rest of town, but Stevens Point was a pretty happening place. So I'm sure that we got around to some sort of pavement or cobblestones. So then what happens, this is totally off the topic, yeah. but on cobblestones, which is transportation and automobiles, that the communities that have kept cobblestones, have the, that was a choice. You know, I just think of Boston and some yeah, of the historic areas. There's like, a lot of cobblestones. So, so if you even like you go down to Milwaukee, though, and you can still see that they just paved right on top of it in a uh-huh. lot of places. Right. And where the pavement is wearing thin, you can still see the cobblestone. They replaced the cobblestone, like I said, downtown. I want to say the 50s, 40s, 50s to get even further off topic. So where the Children's Museum is downtown, right, right in front of there was the city's, the site of the city's first cemetery in 1847. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and they moved the cemetery in the 1880s because that became suddenly a very nice piece of real estate. And so they moved that all the graves to Union Cemetery. So that's where you can, they got reinterred. But when they took up the cobblestone, there was a lot of concern about that the they were going to find a grave and they right. luckily did not. So Okay. That's fascinating. That is Wouldn't fascinating. Wouldn't it be nice if Main Street was cobblestone, sort of, you know, for the for historian and all of us? Right, yeah, yeah. To the property cool. value of it, but it's a, probably a little more uh, easier to deal with pavement. So. Yeah. Plowing. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so some of the uh, addresses I saw in that directory mm-hmm. for 1920, like I had mentioned earlier, they just seemed to be all really centrally located right in what we see as downtown Stevens Point now. Which is just crazy. It was like one on every corner, from what I understand. Well, you have to remember that cars were new, and so you weren't driving over to Crossroad Commons to get your, <laughs> you know, anything. You know, there wasn't anything there. So, like, Third Street was a huge business district. And, you know, I'm seeing, like, so this auto sales company is on the corner of Clark and Strong, and all of them were kind of near there. Yeah. And so it probably was advantageous for them to be somewhat centrally located, but the whole city was much more centrally located because the hub had all of the commercial activity and the residences radiated out from there rather than today where we can drive somewhere further away. So you can almost imagine that all the people that owned automobiles back in the day that lived out of town, all that traffic, well, maybe, or we're used to, <laughs> no, but all that traffic speaking. of the day coming in to get sure. their car serviced or to shop. I mean, it's just a different world. I'm sure that it was... Like the invention of the internet for some people. So it was that jarring to probably people who were probably older in age at, in you know the 19 teens and 20s that the world had changed so fast and these noisy cars are coming into town and things like that. So Makes sense. A lot of people were afraid of them with the noises. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Spooking the horses. Yep, they take right. off and run. Yep. It, was, it was known as a bad mix, I think, in yep. some cases. Uh, then Sherrill Tire and Service, we came on the scene in 1962. That was our That's first right. uh, tire and service location. Young kids. That was right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was right downtown in Stevens Point Correct. as well. Where was yeah. that? It was kind of on the location where now I'll say the park south of the Lullaby Apartments and to the west of south of MEJ's and at Main Grain Bakery. Somewhere that all got reconfigured. But it was in that range and that there was a car dealership next door to it. Okay. I don't remember which one. Hmm. So you were located close to the river, kind of yes. a nice area. Yeah. It was an, Originally, it was an old fire station. That oh, the was build- that the Northside Fire Station? Yes, okay. that was what, because the pole was still there. Oh, okay. And we, as kids, we would slide down that uh, pole. I've heard those stories. Yeah. And because in 1971 was when my father had moved that to where the Stevens Point Tire and Service Center, where it is in front of cops at the time, the cops family had developed that whole project and where Pinery's Bank is and things like that. 
Well, as with every All About the Car podcast, we always break away and hop back in the vehicle and head off to a popular destination or a not-so-well-known destination in Wisconsin. And today, we're hopping back in and we're taking a short trip right here in town in Stevens Point to the PCH Historic Firehouse Number 2. Did a little research on that and uh, actually drove by it and... What an amazing little place, a little history there, sitting right in the back, just off of Water Street, really. Yeah. Well, so it's on Strong's Avenue. Uh, so 1949 Strong's Avenue. It's, so it's uh, Firehouse Number 2. It was built in 1885 and is the oldest surviving municipal building in Stevens Point. And so it was the South Side's fire station and jail. So oh. the back, the back <laughs> and was... being the south side of the city, oh, it was, where uh... it's located now, uh-huh. most people would not qualify that as really the full south side. No, but I mean, right at that point, it didn't didn't uh, extend quite as far as it does right. now. So yeah, they had the holding jail there. So for the drunks in overnight. that same building. Yeah, I don't know how the police got away with shoving those people onto the firemen, but <laughs> uh, that's another podcast, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that was the South Side one. And then in reference to what Bill was talking about, about the, the fire station where the first Sherrill building was, that was the North Side one. That one no longer exists. So we're lucky to have the, the South Side one. And so in 2000 is when, no, 2005 is when the Historical Society took possession of it because it was going to get bulldozed. And oh, so glad they and saved so it. it was basically the city said, you want to deal with it? <laughs> so we're, absolutely. But that's an interesting building because it was not only a fire station, but then after it went out of service as a fire station, it became the YMCA. I went there as a kid. Yep. That yeah. building was a YMCA. Yeah. So like a lot of people remember it as that because they weren't around in the turn of the century for fires. So, you know, a lot of people are like, yeah, I went to teen dance nights at the Y <laughs> at the fire station. So. Yeah, it's a really neat property, and we have really exciting stuff going on there right now. We're working on revamping some of our exhibits. It is open this summer through Labor Day on Saturday mornings from 9.30 to 1. Oh, good to know. Good to know. The really exciting stuff is is we have a 1933 fire truck in there. American I did peek LaFrance. in the window. I saw yep. the front end of that yeah, thing. Yeah, <laughs> so that thing is pretty awesome and massive, and it still actually belongs to the Firefighters Union, so we have an agreement with them to store it, which is great because it's a really beautiful piece of machinery but it has a cracked engine block and so we were thinking well we're never going to get this thing out of here um, <laughs> okay. and, and i would also as the director would like to use the space a little bit more flexibly yeah you're not just pushing that in and out are you no no so but we found a guy so in this comes around the first motorized fire engine in the entire city was uh kept in somebody's potato barn which is a very stevens point thing to do uh-huh. um but a local mechanic named ray akshuda he got that one up and running, and that's a 1917 fire engine. Wow. And so we took that in the 4th of July parade this year, which was a lot of fun. And then he's kind of one of those guys who sees something that has a problem. He goes, I can fix anything. And so he uh, got the 1933 running. Awesome. So you got to keep a lot of coolant in there because it just leaks out right now. <laughs> but he's like, I can weld that. So the good, that's great news to see that that'll be up and running. But the state firefighters convention was in town this summer. And both those fire engines were outside the Holiday Inn for that convention, which is a pretty cool thing. Oh, to see. that's oh. great. Yeah. So exciting things happening there. So really what this gentleman's been doing kind of goes back into the automotive repair history. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's welding. He's right. he, I can do that. And he's fixing it himself. That's really cool. Yeah. So, yeah, you mentioned that uh, open on Saturdays from 930 to 130, so we can tour that. Yep. 
which is a really cool building. Yeah, it's a really neat space. And, you know, I'm looking forward to having different events in there. We had a talk coming up there this week, but then uh, looking forward to doing other things with that space too, that it, beyond just having exhibits to try to get people to come out and see it. Well, and also being at Heritage Park here in Plover, mm-hmm. talking about road trips, what other parks and things of historical groupings are there in the state? I'm, I'm familiar with one in Green Bay because I keep yep, drawing So there's Heritage by. Hill down right. over in Green Bay, and then there's Old World Wisconsin down like kind of near Milwaukee, south okay. of Waukesha. And I think we are probably one of the only others that is fully operational for a large portion of the year anyway. Uh, Stonefield down in Cassville. Okay. Has a 1800s okay. village. Yeah. Right off of the Nelson Dewey State Park. Okay. Cool. Something to research, you know, like as yeah. where are the places to visit in Wisconsin? Sure. It's just a great opportunity for a little road trip. Absolutely. Well, let's extend our road trip and let's bring it back to Heritage Park in Plover. Tell us a little bit more about where we're sitting here today, John. Yeah. So there's 11 historical structures that are surrounding us right now. And this park is open. So if anybody just wants to come out and picnic, you can come do that here too. Like it's not, uh, you know, oh, it's cool. not like a close site. nice close benches. Site. Yeah. You can't get into all the buildings all, right. all the time, but you can always come and take a look around. So on the corner is the Old Plover Methodist Church, and that uh, structure is from 1857, and that's the only original structure on this property. So that church has, has been, been here there, and so that the is on the National Register of Historic Places. Yeah, you um, look at and, that foundation, that wasn't just <laughs> done recently. picked up and moved. <laughs> right, yep. <laughs> so, that is an actual on-the-spot historic structure, so you think about weddings, funerals, celebrations and mourning it took place on this site over the years and that is our exhibit space at the moment and so we have our exhibit running this year is uh portage county and world war ii that's in there and then so in 1977 the historical society took possession of this land and the church and opened it up in 1978 then and then over the years these other buildings have kind of appeared here (laughs) we've we've, uh the society has gone through great (laughs) pains in some places ways to get a lot of these historic structures saved. I mean, when you talk about Plover, think history, Post Road doesn't look anything like it used to look. They used to have a downtown. Now it's all strip malls and business like that, but they've widened the streets so much that they had to take down what we would consider like a downtown-y type of main street. And so a lot of the buildings that are historic in Plover are here and then just around the county too. So the schoolhouse was out near the Wapaka Portage County line near Amherst. And then, so they've been saved and then moved here. Yep. And we resurrect them. A lot of these buildings were gutted or being used for other purposes. Even the church had no religious context by the time we got it. The congregations had moved on 10, 15 years prior, and a developer tried to make it duplexes. And so that's why we're okay using it as an exhibit hall because we're like, well, we're not, we're not going to be able to bring it back to exactly what it was anyway. So we're going to use it for what we need it to. But the school was abandoned. The train station had a tree growing up through the middle through it. And that's from Bancroft. So like a lot of these structures, we literally saved them and rehabilitated them so people can learn from them and use them for enjoyment too. So, so is that train track that runs right next to that church, has that always been here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yep. that church was right next to a train track. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yep. Exactly. Interesting. So, and then the, the depot that we have is from Bancroft. So not natural or not sure. original to that there, but uh, was part of the P line of the Sioux line. And so it was called the P line because it extended from Portage to Plover to Point. Oh, neat. So, so it was a very small stop on the, you know, Bancroft's not a huge metropolitan area. But yeah, it's pretty neat that we have a little piece of that history yeah. stone. So. Now our listeners can't see us sitting here on, on the picnic table. 
in Heritage Park. But right behind us, there's a interesting structure. I'll call it a house. It is a house. Give us a little history on that. It's one of the oldest houses in the county. It's it's we call it the Angford House. It was built in 1850 by a judge lawyer guy named Minor Strope, who was a pretty big heavy hitter in the county early on, one of the few people in the state bar in the area. And then it was later owned by two families involved in the circus industry, the Barnsdales and then the Engfords. And uh, Portage County has a pretty illustrious circus past, and this area does. So they were pioneers in motorized circus equipment. So getting from town to town, not using a train or a horse and buggy. And so we luckily have one of their caravans where the whole family of four would sleep. (laughs) And so you can peek in there. It's like a camper, isn't it? It is, yeah. And they built that on a Model A chassis in the 20s. And so we're really lucky to have one because there are three of them and the other two are at Circus World in Baraboo, which is a state historical society museum. But we have the other one here, which I'm all for keeping local history local. And we should have it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Exactly. So yeah. it's pretty neat to be able to have that on display and people you can look in there and go, oh my God, <laughs> I can't <laughs> believe that this is how they lived. But yeah, the house is interesting because they were a circus family. That was their profession. They were not what you would call like a particularly wealthy family. And a lot of times middle-class homes are the first to go. Because we tend to save the big mansions or the big houses or, you know, the things that are really opulent. But most of us would have lived in a structure like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's a really great slice of everyday life. And then the other house that we have here is the Franklin Calkins house, which is a wealthy farmer's house. So, and that would have been over near like where Mark Toyota is. Uh, near the freeway. Oh. And the guy who built that house was named Benjamin Washington Franklin. So there's a Ooh, name. that sounds really um, uh, high end. So he, uh, a lot he, of presidential he, connection there. He was <laughs> a, it purported to be a great grandnephew of Benjamin Franklin. And so he made his money selling potatoes to Union during the Civil War. So it's interesting, though, because that's a very wealthy person's house for that time period. And then you go to the Angford house and you're like, this is a middle class house. So Mm -hmm. we we kind of have the dichotomy between the two where we're saving all parts of historic value, not just uh, wealthy parts. That's all gathered right here in Plover. This is awesome. Yep. Well, let's head back to our subject, automobile repair in Portage County, the history of. And uh, we're going to kind of bring it forward a little bit more, which is going to probably uh, allow you to talk a little bit more, Brian, I'm I'm guessing at this point. But John, you've got a lot of information, so keep going. So obviously, automobiles evolved. Things really started to change. You mentioned back when there was only like 8,000 automobiles in America. Obviously, that's changed. So a lot of things have happened since then. And then computers, onboard computers became a thing back in... Um, Mainstream back in the late 70s. Late 70s. And that really changed repair, I guess, for it, for the most part. It changed the industry dramatically. There was a lot of mechanics at that point that got out of the industry because they couldn't deal with the electronics. It was just so foreign to them that they couldn't jump in and work on them. Is that the time frame then uh, when we started to say you had to be a technician or you were a technician versus a mechanic? Yep, that was in that time period because you replaced components instead of rebuilding them. And rebuilding water pumps and fuel pumps and, oh goodness, wheel cylinders and engines and transmissions. That was all commonplace back in the mid-70s and prior to that. And then it got into component replacement because there's transistors and nothing you could do with them. Wow. Yeah, so things have really changed. And you mentioned that a lot of the mechanics, so to say, got out of the business because they couldn't handle the new age technology. Did it do the same type of thing to the small independent shops? Some of them just couldn't get on board with it? They hung around longer, in my opinion. 
you get into the mid-80s, you still had a fair amount of the corner gas stations that were working on cars. But at that point, it really started to change because the age of the fleet was now pretty much all fuel injection, no carburetors, things like that. Not to mention, then the imports started to become a thing. I mean, they've always been there, but on a really small scale. But that percentage really started to change back in the 60s and 70s, which brought a different culture to automotive repair because everything was a little bit different. Yeah, you, you come into the early 70s with the fuel embargoes and the gas shortages that you had to have something that got better than eight miles to the gallon. So the imports started coming around and we're getting mid-20s for fuel economy, mid-30s. So that really changed the motoring industry. Were those imports, were the measurements and metric at that point? As far as the Actually, engine yeah. displacement? Right, yeah. yeah, that's where that came from. And the metric your, bolts and nuts. Right, and, yeah. I mean, like you didn't even have that set of tools in your house necessarily to even work on A lot of these old car. mechanics re- right. refused to get those <laughs> tools, <laughs> yeah. too. And that yeah, just, the Datsuns and the Hondas and the Toyotas, the Fiats, those are all... Up and coming car companies back in the mid, early to mid 70s. Datsun, there's a name you don't hear very often yep. anymore. How many people even know what a Datsun is? Exactly. What did that evolve into? Nissan. Nissan, absolutely. And then the uh, car started going faster, longer. Longevity increased dramatically because of fuel injection. The oiling of the engine, the internal combustion part, or the internal parts of the engine, with the oil being able to stay there instead of the gas washing all the oil down and Taking out the cylinders and the valves and 100,000 miles in a car in the early 80s, was it was pretty much wore out. Yeah, that was its uh, last birthday in many cases. <laughs> yep. And now <laughs> half a million miles is commonplace. And the faster they go, the more safety becomes important, which really, you know, you go from the lap belts to the shoulder belts and, you know, on and on with everything, airbags, all this kind of thing, which really then also did change and make the repair industry evolve even further. We had to know a lot more about repairing all of these important safety features that, if the car came equipped with, had to keep. Yeah, the ADIS systems, the automatic braking, the collision avoidance has saved tens of thousands of lives over the years. The three-point safety belt was actually developed, it was either by Volvo or Saab, and they had the patent on it, but they gave everybody the rights to that because they felt that... The saving of a life was more important than making money. So they didn't charge any money for the right to use that patent. Wow. Amazing. And that goes back into the 60s. And Saab isn't even in existence anymore, is it? I think they're gone. I don't know. I think they were bought a couple times, um, and I believe they're gone. Yeah. My brother-in-law had a stick shift Saab, and that thing was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. People really stand by him. It was like built yeah. like an airplane. Right. Uh, yeah, like a cockpit. Con- cockpit. Yeah. You yeah. can't kill him. You couldn't right. kill him, I don't think. Right. I actually was like, dude, does Dave still have that car? Yeah. That- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where was the key to start it? It was a weird, like, key fob thing. Yeah, Down the center, in the center right. console. Yep. Right. Yep. Not anywhere close to the steering wheel. Yep. And being in the tire business, we know that tire technology has changed as well. We had talked about in many previous podcasts, the TPMS, the Tire Pressure Monitoring Systems, which technicians also had to understand and be able to service as well. And we do that on a daily basis now, but that's just another evolution of tire or automotive repair and a part of our everyday business was dealing with this low-pressure electronic system. Oh, that's been around a long time. long time in the 80s with the Corvette and the run flat tires, but 
it became mandatory in 2007 for all cars and light trucks. So we've been dealing with it for a long time. Hey, we have. You know, and in, in the news, almost every day we hear about what's new and coming up in some of these vehicles. But in the automotive repair industry, we're dealing with cars on the average that are how old, Brian? 12 plus years. 12 plus years old. That's the average mileage or uh, age of the fleet out on the road. And know. it's continuing to grow every year. So we probably, from a repair standpoint, won't see a lot of this brand new technology until maybe 10 years from now. Maybe. I won't see the EVs. You won't see it? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, talking about that history of 12 years or 10 years from now, how do you perceive what is important to catalog, track? I mean, I'm just, you know, it's interesting because these things are in our lifetime right. sitting around the table, but... Give yeah. another 25 years, and that's not the case. We typically don't collect things that are younger than 50 years old unless it's something that is obviously has like a local historical value, like something to do with trivia or point beer or, you know, something like that. 50 years old, uh, yeah, all but, the way back to the 70s. Yeah, but, but now, but you, you know, you say that now it's like, well, we do see some things from the 80s and 90s that are like, well, probably worth saving. And we're in the time of a historic moment right now after a pandemic. And so there's things that you don't want to have to wait to get because they may not last. That's kind of a change that's happening in the historical nonprofit industry as far as what do you collect because it's becoming more commonplace to actively be collecting when you know something is historic now so that you're not waiting for somebody to find something in their attic and then you hopefully have something, right? But then we don't have unlimited space. And so you have to be very, to get to kind of what what Bill was asking, there's old and there's historic. Right. There are things that are, are just have lasted a long time, and that's really great, but it's not necessarily something that's historic or relevant to the people of the county or specific to the people of the county. So we're cognizant of that as we're going through a cataloging process, trying to figure out what we have and making sure that we have duplications in the right places. Well, John, if you would uh, please start to collect some information now, that way in 25 years when we call you back for the next podcast, we've got some good information right from the source. I'm yeah. going to go back to this podcast as a source. Remember you back know. when. Because yeah, yeah. we all know we're very historic. Yeah. <laughs> and we keep getting more historical. I don't know. I'm guessing you are doing best practice of your record keeping. Oh, of course. Yes. But those records have historical value and those get harder and harder to collect because now they're all digital in a lot of ways. So there's a big thing there of, you know, a lot of these things I pulled the days of city directory, which is paper. We don't barely have phone books anymore. Right. Exactly. And a lot of these binders are full of different newspaper clippings. All that's mostly digital, too. So there's an interesting uh, thing happening in in how you preserve history right now. And the future of automotive repair, who knows what that's going to look like. I don't even want to think about it. But, you know, we've got electric vehicles coming around. Uh, It's a real kind thing these days and uh, autonomous you mentioned that brian earlier wow so who knows what it's all going to look like but yeah we're going to be retired by then yeah. <laughs> 50 years from now and, all yeah. and we're riding around in your self-driving car not having right. to worry about you fixing it <laughs> exactly <laughs> well today we've learned more than we ever thought possible about the deep history of auto repair in portage county thank you john harry for hosting another historical all about the car podcast happy that you guys came out as we sit right here at Heritage Park in the village of Plover. We hope to have you right along next time on All About the Car. To listen to previous episodes, find additional resources, or to simply send us a message, head to allaboutthecarpodcast.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>